Hello and welcome to episode 12 of 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. Uh, my guest today is Helen Pankhurst, who's a women's rights activist and author, um, currently working for Care International as a senior advisor um, on the in the UK and also in Ethiopia, where she was brought up. But Helen is the great-granddaughter of Emmeline Pankhurst and the granddaughter of Sylvia Pankhurst, who were both leaders in the British suffragette movement. Um, Helen's worked for a range of uh, international development organisations and has been a visiting senior fellow at the London School of Economics and a visiting professor at Manchester Metropolitan University. And at the opening ceremony of the London 2012 Olympics, um, Helen appeared alongside her daughter, Laura, um, highlighting women's rights. Um, Helen's book uh, is called Deeds, Not Words. It came out in 2018, the story of women's rights then and now, which is very good, and I recommend it. So in a moment, we'll hear from Helen. She'll be talking about um, the campaign for women's suffrage, um, which you know people will be aware of, but maybe won't know some of the details about. Um, but in the UK, that was a, a, a long-running campaign, which was obviously it did change the world and was successful. But it took, um, you know, it took a long time, and it was a painful experience for many of those involved. And she sets it out quite clearly, and, and um, interestingly, has a um, also a family take on it, as you'd expect. So here's Helen. Hi, I'm here with uh, Helen Pankhurst and we're talking about uh, the campaign for women's suffrage and the suffragettes. Um, hi, Helen. Hi, nice to be with you. Uh, yes, it's good to have you. And yeah, I was just going to uh, kick off by asking you, <clears throat> I suppose um, the term suffragettes is very familiar to, to many people, certainly in the UK, but I think globally. But actually, when it was first... Um, when it was first uh, coined, that term, it was I think coined by the Daily Mail, and it was it was meant as actually as a as a slight as a as a um, yes, it you was know, a diminutive a, basically exactly yeah yeah. So it was a way of making fun of them, you know, et small that kind of thing. And um, Emmeline, who was a bit of a francophile, uh, quite liked it, um, and so um, she and others decided to own it. And that's often the case, isn't it? Any activist's voice, often um, words get used derogatory and owning them and um, transforming the image behind those words is part of the political agenda. Also, another interesting thing is that they use the terms a little bit interchangeably, at least initially. So suffrage campaign, a suffragette, you see them using the words um, not very clearly delineated the way we do now, namely suffragettes equals women's social and political union, one wing of the whole campaign, and suffrage campaigners being the more um, constitutional uh, uh, suffrage campaigners. That very even very late on, people are not quite using the words quite that distinctively. So, 
This might sound like a bit of a strange question, but um, thinking about the suffragettes um, and the the women's social and political union, which was was the organisation around them, um, what contribution do you think they made to the actual uh, goal um, and objective of women's suffrage? And I, I know I say it's a strange question because I think we we sort of think of them as interchangeable, but this was part of a wider movement in both international and in the UK or in, in, in Britain and people like the Independent Labour Party were also calling for women's suffrage and others so how do you see it I mean obviously they were central to that picture but how, how, how much of a contribution how would you quantify or describe so, their contribution? Um, if we think about three aspects of change, one is the actions of individuals, the other is the changing of norms, and the third is the changing of laws or policies. Uh, when it comes to suffrage and the right to vote, um, I think you could argue that the suffragettes were the ones at the forefront of changing norms, changing attitudes and ideas within the society by really pushing that issue to the centre of debate in every family, on the news, um, in public places. They also pushed the agenda by individual women standing up and defining themselves very differently from how society uh, was pigeonholing them. So in terms of the agency element, in terms of the social norms challenge element, I would argue that the suffragettes were absolutely pivotal. In terms of the law change, the, that act, um, I think the contribution of many other groups, including the suffrage campaigns, including the trade unions and many others were uh, part of that story as well. Um, but I think the, the absolute, the, the challenge, the demand, the deeds not words uh, language, the very clever PR um, and imagery that the suffragettes used was uh, second to none in terms of uh, the achieving those changes also the threat i mean plain and simply the threat that unless the law changed they would continue with their disobedience and their campaigns uh, was also part of the story do, do you think they had um, an effect on other countries i mean there's just some countries that had um the women's right to vote slightly earlier but most most followed suit later on Definitely. I mean, it was part of a global moment of change and you, there's a lot of correspondence before, during and after. And you see here um, the influences, individuals moving from one country to another and affecting change as well. So um, coming from Australia to the UK, from the UK to the States, uh, within um, many other places in Europe, um, in Africa and Asia, many, many links. Although incredibly... Um, I was reading that Switzerland didn't allow women to vote till 1971. Uh, that's right. And uh, a reminder, actually, that it took so long and we're still not there yet. If you think of many of the countries in the Arab world where there might mm. be nominal rights, um, but it's not actually in practice or even in parts of um, well, in many parts of the world where um, there's supposed to be a democratic right to vote, but it's actually power is held elsewhere and it's it's a bit of a farce. So yeah. uh, still so much to be done. And also just because you get it once, that right doesn't mean to say it can't be taken away. Examples yeah. of that in history as well. Yeah, I, th I think what the, the suffragettes are perhaps 
I don't know, best known for, but certainly well known for, is that there, there, it wasn't an entirely peaceful method of, of, of campaigning. Um, certainly there were moments where, you know, images that we have in our mind where, um, you know, th- there was certain types of direct action and even some sort of violent acts. Now, I suppose what people perhaps also don't have clear in their minds is that that was only later on after the sort of if you like more peaceful means had failed and and you know bill after bill or, or, or was blocked in in the house of commons yeah that's right you have a state with all the power of the state that refuses to give women the right um, to vote uh, that promise uh, time after time that in the next um, Queen's speech something will be brought, or King's speech something will be brought in and it doesn't Um, and instead of just accepting the status quo you have a group that decides to push the boundaries and keep demanding change and I think one of the important things as we reflect uh, and describe what happened is to remember that the violent, I mean, look at the violence of the state with all of its machinery against those women. So imprisoning them, force-feeding them, and uh, and that violence needs to be mentioned, I think, before uh, any talk of what the suffragettes did. Um, what they did was not be silenced and find ways of making their point, including violence to property, because they felt that... Uh, that the state, the government, the establishments wouldn't worry too much about what happened to them as individual women, the violence, literally the brutality, the uh, physical abuse, the uh, harassment of women, that that, um, they would brush uh, under the counter and uh, wouldn't be visible. But uh, the suffragettes' response by targeting property, money, uh, would suddenly mean that they would be taken a lot more seriously they had a very clear policy of not hurting individuals. They would, they were hurt themselves, but there was no uh, violence to, uh, there was no killing, for example. Um, and so they had that line, although questions can be asked about whether at some point they might not have crossed that line. And definitely some individual suffragettes were more willing to be, uh, uh, to use some elements of violence against the police and against um, some public figures. Um, but I'm drawing that line because the word terrorists is often used uh, today in the context of trying to explain what they did. And I think that's a false analysis because of this issue of the line that they were drawing. I also think it's really important for us to acknowledge what an incredible act of courage it took for women... Uh, at that time to take the steps that they took, bearing in mind the um, the conditioning of how women are supposed to behave, uh, you know, the being gentle and be behind and not, uh, not challenged in any way. And that still applies, let alone uh, how women were perceived um, to to be... Cons- what, what good behaviour was expected over 100 years ago. Yes. And presumably there were there was a background to that why these uh, this generation of women felt a bit more emboldened um over previous generations and, and that presumably was 
you know, social change, changes in social norms, political changes, all, all of that in the background? Yes, um, some being more educated, uh, seeing some of the changes in terms of other rights that other groups were gaining. Um, I also think the cascading event uh, effect, you know, as soon as you have some people being made visible through their demands and their uh, actions, the pent-up uh, frustration with the status quo uh, has somewhere to go and a movement is created. There were, obviously, as you would expect in a movement, this complicated and new and developing there were schisms and differences in, in tactics and aims of the movement. Um, could you could you describe some of those different views? And I, I, I partly like you to address class as an issue and whether to what to what degree was that a, a splitting issue? Um, in, in the end, women were only allowed to vote if they had property and. Um, so, you know, obviously that that was a, a, a middle class, middle and upper class um, right, which didn't extend to the working class uh, who didn't own property. Um, but was that, uh, how much was that a sort of a facet or a, or a fault line? Yes, uh, there's, there's so much to say. I mean, the first thing is remember at the time that working class men didn't have the right to vote either. Um, so before 1918, in fact, that first act that allows some women to vote also is the first time that working class men get the vote as well. So there's a massive increase of both men and some women getting the vote. So pre-1918, for a working class woman to get involved in the campaign, she would have had to believe, A, that working class people would get the vote and B, that women would get the vote. Uh, therefore, in some ways, it's not surprising possibly that it was that much uh, more of a leap of faith for working class women to get involved without even considering all the uh, economic reasons why it would be difficult for working class women to spend her time campaigning or some of the social hierarchies and uh, uh, inequalities that might mean that uh, she might feel less able to express herself um, or have the experience to do um, to do so. So many reasons why this wasn't uh, a, a very easy process. But what is fascinating about uh, the suffrage movement, uh, possibly as is often the case in social movements, is how it did bring people together on the cause of women's rights across differences, across class differences, across religious differences, across uh, occupational ones, um, age. You have very young people campaigning with very old one. Uh, marital status, which was a big division in society, you know, at the time, those that are married, those were not. And in fact, a lot of arguments about whether um, married women should or shouldn't get the vote because their husband might have the vote. And therefore, was it double counting if a wife also had a vote versus or not? Um, differences of educational level, etc. So there were schisms. The major one uh, is often described in terms of the constitutional suffragist that had started beforehand militant forces uh, and before uh, that uh, were more uh, educated uh, and uh, yeah yeah um, let's see that more educated um, 
less working class women as well, arguably. Uh, and then the suffragettes that emerge as this more uh, radical uh, deeds, not words type uh, uh, language motto that has more working class uh, women. But um, one of the schisms becomes around, is this a war where you listen to the leader uh, in this case, Emmeline and a few, a small band of women, including uh, very high up in that leadership uh, position, Annie Kenny, um, the mill girl, poster girl, mill girl. Um, so the one of the schisms becomes, do you listen to the leader as you would in any army? Or is this about democracy and voice, in which case surely you should debate and discuss and agree a position? And that becomes one of the reasons why some people move away from the suffragettes as being too auto or, or, or autocratic, or, um, including in the schism, uh, the schism within the family with uh, Emmeline and her older Christabel on one side and Sylvia, my grandmother, on the other that disagree on this position, as they do on a number of other um, factors. A disagreement when the First World War happens as to how to respond to that disagreement about the role of men should they be uh involved as leaders or should they be there in support what do you do with universal franchise bearing in mind that point about working class men didn't have the vote at the time either do you just focus on women's right to vote or do you also focus on men's right uh, do you respond to other uh local and global events that are happening uh, there are whole issues around empire that surface at this point or do you just keep focused on women's rights and not uh, get involved in any other social campaign? Are you party political? Do you look at which party is most likely to give women the vote? Um, and do you align to that party? Or do you uh, say none of the parties are actually going to focus on women's rights? We do this independently. So you can see why there are many reasons why there are differences of opinion as to how to do this. Yeah, and, and it's that... The, the family aspect is quite interesting, isn't it? Because as you talked about the splits in the family, you know, with Sylvia going off towards um, socialism, I guess, and uh, there being that split and, and other splits as well. But but at the same time, do you think that the fact that, the, you know, there were the Pankhursts as a sort of central anchor, in a way, the family in the movement did that actually do you think that helped or hindered i think it helped and hindered um mm -hmm. you know when else in history do you have uh, the example of a mother and daughters campaigning on anything or even um you know you often have a husband and wife with the husband as a, a key character or possibly two generations of men one succeeding the other but the fact mm. that they were doing this together they, they took up different roles so you have the mother figure you have emmeline you know with that head uh, head of the family head of the household by this point her husband had died and actually I mean, there's a whole issue around his influence but he had died and then you have um three daughters and then the son who's involved briefly but dies quite young and of the three daughters, one, the oldest, is a strategist. She's the most militant of the lot. Uh, and she does a lot of the thinking. And uh, at a point where there's a lot of uh, imprisoning, she escapes to Paris to be able to continue to plot and lead from afar. You have uh, um, Sylvia, who is the artist, does a lot of the designs, uh, is more... Uh, intuitive emotionally probably and more aware of some of the wider social issues uh, and uh, moves to London and becomes the 
the link point to the south because there's also geography in this. Initially, they set up in Manchester. So the uh, WSPU suffragette movement starts in Manchester. Uh, and then you have Adela, who was one of the, uh, the youngest of the daughters who campaigns uh, in different ways as well in the north before the family schisms result in her actually ending up in Australia. So, yes, I do think the fact that there were quite a few of them doing slightly different things uh, meant that they were more powerful than they would have been if it had just been one person. We're going to stop there for a, for a moment and uh, take a break. We'll be back in a minute with, um, with Helen Pankhurst talking about the suffragettes. Okay, we're back with Helen Pankhurst. And um, Helen, I was going to ask you about um, the role of the media in in the uh, struggle of the of the suffragettes. And I mean, the media were, I think, it's fair to say, fairly, you know, consistently, implacably opposed to the suffragettes until such time that some of them weren't. Uh, you know, and I think that from what I've read, part of that reason was. Um, some sympathy they were starting have, to have with the women because of the way they were being treated by the by the police and others. Um, but can you say, yeah, yeah, how important was the media and how important was getting the media a bit more on side? So the media is part of the establishment. It's part of the structure of society reflecting the ownerships and the power balances uh, within that democratic space. So very clearly the media was sexist and um, was owned by media barons who were very much uh, linked to the establishment. They were, they became many of them lords. There's a, a very strong link between the house of lords and the media world. Um, and, and with all sorts of uh, kind of um, funding um relationships that are pretty you know pretty uh, worrying at best um so that's the context and then you have uh these women that surface that um challenge uh, all the establishment and who are uh, made fun of so the media enjoys uh, uh diminishing them making fun of them we heard earlier how the daily mail you know coined that suffragette as a derogatory term uh and in many ways, they are very critical. However, these suffragettes are funny. They are um, they are innovative in the approaches that they use. Um, they cannot be ignored, and they provide incredibly um, strong media images and stories and uh, uh, information, basically. So it, it, it sells. What the, the antics that the suffrage get, suffragettes get up to actually sells. So I think there is a bit of an ambivalence because of that. Um, and then also uh, the treatment by the police of the suffragettes and the narratives, the stories of uh, what they are forced to endure uh, means that 
public sympathy at points is very much with the suffragettes, not the police. And so the media also reflect that. And uh, uh, probably it's the death of, the, of uh, Emily Wilding Davison in 1913 that is a critical point um, in that respect, in that more and more the media side with the suffragettes. Although is... they, they still manage to you know, remain very um, chauvinistic in a lot of the coverage. coverage. So the, the Emily Wilding Davison was the woman who who ran out on the race course at Epsom to uh, we we think to try and pin a pin a, um, a slogan or a, or a or a badge sash. on a yeah yeah a sash exactly yes and that's a sort of fame one of the one of the famous images of of the movement yeah um, uh, it's so, by the way it's also helped by the fact that nobody really knows whether she was knowing the dangers and whether this was a one-way ticket for her, that this was the extreme to which she would go in order to make the cause, that she was a martyr and a willing martyr to it, or whether there was a slight miscalculation over the speed of the horse and that uh, what she was doing was, was one amongst many of ra- very radical uh, acts. Um, and that very question uh, has been powerful as a way of narrating the story it's, it's created a media question in itself and the fact that it was very visible on the cine cameras of the world that you know that that um, scene was shown on camera also created massive uh, impact had the media not been able to cover it in that way with the footage that you can still see today you can see the horses run you can see her uh, run up and fall and the horse fall as well. Um, that media image was very powerful for the cause. Yeah, and I suppose that maybe the you know the, the, one of the things people remember the chaining of the chaining themselves to Downing Street uh, um, outside Downing Street and and um, lots of other sort of more yeah I guess you'd call them non-violent direct action. But there was a whole panoply of different tactics that the suffragettes used over time uh, you know involving art and games and different campaigns about um you know about uh, about the sexual habits of men there was the window smashing camp there was just an incredible sort of tapestry of of different tactics uh, you know which I mean, I don't know if you compare that to today, perhaps our campaign is a little bit more, um, you know, kind of one tracked or, uh, you know, you, you know, maybe a bit form- formulaic, you might say. Yeah, uh, definitely. They were full of uh, very uh, innovative ways of making their point. The, the fact that the colours were so successful. So they had this purple, white and green. Uh, the, this was the suffragettes. And those colours are still today synonymous with uh suffrage and women's rights in in many countries around the world if you look at the women's equality party here for example it uses that color um so without with just color they managed to say so much so jewelry for different very very cheap jewelry to very expensive jewelry started to use those colors as a way of people branding their allegiances um uh, coins so they stamped votes for women on coins uh, defacing the image of the king which was a way in which you would circulate your message um, 
just through coins and it was radical you were you were against you know you were, you were making a statement that was um totally unacceptable and defacing the, the the image of the king was was just uh uh i don't quite know what the right term is but it was um it was totally unacceptable um hot air balloons used to distribute uh leaflets at a time when these things were very unpredictable and you couldn't you didn't know where it would end up going and you couldn't uh, control the direction of the hot air balloons. Many, many ways in which they showed innovative approaches. Emily Wilding Davison, one last example, who was the one who uh, ended up dying um, after that event uh, that we just talked about, also hid in a broom cupboard in the Houses of Parliament on Census Day in order to be able to say, as place of location, the House of Parliament. Uh, at a time when the whole point was to be able to say that women belonged in the House of Parliament. Uh, and many people use Census Day to boycott it and put, for example, on the census, there's a column that has uh, disability, where you're supposed to put what disability you have on the census form. And women put not enfranchised as their disability. And many other ways where humour was also used to make the point. Yeah, and I suppose if we're thinking about, again, the lessons for the 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 modern day campaigner. Um, I suppose uh, one thing that you would sort of take from this is persistence, you know, being in it for the long term, not giving up, trying different methods. Um, I, I wonder whether, you know, in, in the current age of sort of three, two year campaigns, one year, six months, three months, you know, you could reflect on on the suffragettes and say actually social change takes sometimes takes a long time yeah i think resilience uh resistance perseverance those terms i've seen a lot of the correspondence uh and you know you have letters from emmeline for example um in 1904 1905 thinking oh we'll, you know we'll get that so a few years after she started they started the campaign saying I know we're going to get it in a few years. We're nearly there. And year after year that happens. And um, the times when the women were imprisoned and force fed and they thought that was it, that was the last time. And yet it went on and on and on. Um, So 1918, they get the vote, but not equally. It takes another 10 years before equal uh, franchise in 1928. So I think the suffrage movement and I think women's rights generally the story is one of how difficult it is to change the norms and the laws uh, and individual behavior uh, to get to equality and the the need to keep going and that things can go backwards they don't it isn't this, this assumption that things just get better is not borne out by facts it certainly isn't <clears throat> I wanted to ask you um and you know, you've, you know, in reference to reading your book, which is called "The Story of Women's Rights Then and Now," uh, what you think has been achieved, and you know, obviously, the right to vote, the right to stand in Parliament, um, and those aims were fully achieved um, eventually, as you say. But what is left to do, and you know, to what extent? Um, do you think that you, you see echoes of the suffragettes in what's happening now on women's rights and, and what might happen in the future? I think everything is still to be done. 
And the reason I say that is if you break it down, and I do in my book. So, for example, if you look at how far we've got in politics um, in the UK, we have what is it? I think it's 21 percent of the cabinet are women, 34 percent, I think, of the House of Commons. And I think it's 29 in the House of Lords. So we're not there yet if if we talk about uh, the political world. Um, and I've asked, sometimes asked people to score, you know, from zero to five. And I do that in the book as well, with zero meaning no change and five being equality. And a lot of people go somewhere in between on politics. They say, yeah, you know, there's been a lot of success. But in terms of leadership, um, in terms of equal representation, in terms of diversity of representation, all women, you know, we talked about class earlier, but also race, uh, et cetera, still so much to be done. If we talk about how they part the political system is still so unfriendly to women the fact that they get so much more of the uh, abuse that that there isn't a systematic formal maternity cover yet in parliament etc cetera, etc cetera. and then okay so what about if you look at the economic sphere and women at work a lot of change a lot of progress but in so many spheres still pe- the pay gap is there the issues the expectations of uh Leadership, women in leadership still um, very far from equal. Look, if you look at property and wealth, the gaps are still absolutely massive. Um, the ideas of what's valued, what economic activities are valued and what are not valued uh, is often very gendered. You know, wh- who gets the biggest pay in terms of the types of work, very gendered. Um, so not there yet. If you take any issue uh, culturally, the amount of if you look at sports and the amount of uh, the domination of football and sports where men are visible on the TV weekend, week out. And it's starting to shift, but it's still still so much to be done. And uh, the whole uh, economic, the, the, the funding for uh, women's sports still nowhere to be seen and then and I, I've kind of left it till last there's so many other aspects around the focus on what women uh, s- what men say and uh, do and what women look like and we that gets perpetuated in so many spheres but left till last is this issue of violence the violence against women as uh, a factor that every single woman every single woman is aware of the curfews of where she can go and when she can be anywhere from the age of what 10 onwards uh, so that universal reality that women are still uh, worried about violence against women uh, you know in the public spaces in domestic spaces harassment of different forms cultural forms etc that that still defines so many women's um, lives so i'd say as soon as you start breaking it down you realize how mm. much we still have to do yeah we're, we're we're a long way off clearly and uh, um we're on a journey but um I just, yeah, just want to thank you, uh, Helen, for your time today. It's been really, really interesting talking to you. Um, and, uh, yeah, hopefully we can uh, see more progress uh, more quickly um, yeah. in the future. Yeah, thanks very much. And, I mean, I don't want to end it on a downer because I think sure. the, the, the main point is that things get better, but they can go backwards. And we all, every single one of us, men and women, have a responsibility to make sure that we're shifting the needle in the directions towards equality and diversity. Um, and that it's actually fun to do so. It's fun to be involved in the world, to engage in the issues and not just feel that there, things are happening and that we have no uh, no control over them. I think the more we engage in the world, the more the world engages with us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And you could even make a career out of it <laughs> these days. Okay. <laughs> well, with, without being force-fed, which is the critical yeah. point. 
Yes, it's helpful. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Ella. Really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. Thank you.